Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osban, here with my friend and Chavrutza Aaron Gordon. Our daf today, Masachet Kitubot, daf Nun Dalet, page 54. So we're going to wrap up Parak Ravi, the fourth Parak today. Well, actually, even though we have a Mishnah for the fifth Parak today, we're not going to start that till tomorrow. Um, but we sort of end with some, you know, technical points about when we maybe would end a widow's right to re- to sort of uh, continue her mizonote right, right to receive sustenance from her uh, dead husband's estate, or uh, other things that may change in the receiving of of money or a monetary gain from the ketuba itself. So I want to read a passage that I thought was very interesting. Uh, it mentions a lot of geography, so it's and much of the geography of Bubble that we talk about, but I think it also shows us that not all of these halachot were set, right? Like we have, it's a standard ketubah today. There's no variation. But what we see in this type of passage is sort of how the ketubah was actually developing. That in different places, there were different minhagim. And so we saw this in the mission itself, right? Where it talked about how the residents of Yerushalayim, right? Uh, they would write the ketubah one way. And the way they would write it is, is that if a woman was widowed, she essentially could maintain her rights to Mizonot as long as she stayed inside her husband's house. Um, and whereas the residents of Yehuda, um, she could live in her house, right? She, she would basically, she she would live in his house and continue to get the Mizonot um, until the Yerushin, until the heirs decided uh, that, uh, you know, that that they wanted to just pay her <coughs> off and give her the entire ketubah. So um, the Amorayim also disagreed over this, right? In other words, that was a machlokas in Israel, okay, depending on what region you were. And now the Gemara asks, okay, well, what did they do in Bavel, basically, right? Itmar, Rav Amar, Halacha Ka'anche Yehuda, Ushmu Amar, Halacha Ka'anche Galil, right? So Rav says the Halacha is like the resident, that essentially she can stay in the house and get them his own note until they decide to give her the to give her the tuba. And Shmuel says the halacha is like the residence of the Galil and also uh, of of Yerushalayim, right? That she stays in the husband's house and gets the mizonot uh, from his property all all throughout her being uh, a widow, right? It doesn't have to do with whether tuba was paid out or not yet. Okay, Babel bechol parvoteha nahu karav. So the Gemara tells us that all of Babel and all of the towns, that's what Parvadaha is, acted according to Rav, right? Naharda v'chol Parvotaha, But Naharda acted according with the opinion of Shmuel. And again, this tells us something about where these people lived and sort of, uh, you know, where they, uh, you know, sort of where they exerted power. So we know that Shmuel lived in Naharda, so it makes that Naharda and sort of its surrounding areas, uh, you know, uh, that they followed according to Shmuel, where I think it's telling us something that Rav must have been, was a little bit, because the rest of Bavel, uh, you know, uh, followed followed him. Um, and so then uh, the Gemara goes on to say, um, uh, So then they had a case where there was a woman which would probably fall under the purview of Rav, right? Um, and but she married somebody uh, who she was married to a man from Naharda. 
Right, so now we go into a next generation. And so the question before Rav Nachman is, right, who, where is she going to follow? Like, is she going to follow the minhag of Naharda, right? That in other words, she only gets the mizonot till the ketubah is resolved. Or is she going to get to follow the minhag of Rav, which is the rest of Bavel? And as soon as Rav Nachman heard, you know, he heard from her voice, Right, he could hear from her voice that she was from Machosa. They must have they had a distinctive accent, right? So it would be like you could hear somebody was from the northeast or from the south or something like that. So he says to everybody, right? So he says, Oh, she's from Machosa, she should follow Rav, basically. And then they say, Yeah, but she's marrying. She married somebody from Naharda, right? She's going to marry someone from Naharda. Amr Lahu, Ihafli Naharda, Bechol Parvata, Nahu, Kishmuel. So he says, fine, then go ahead and follow like Shmuel, right? Va'ad Echa Naharda. So then the question becomes until when is the boundary of Naharda, okay? Ad Echa Desagi Kaba de Naharda. So it's any place where the Kav measurement of Naharda. And so we learned something else interesting about Naharda. Right, which that Naharda sort of had its own um, measuring system. Um, they had a different way of measuring the measurement of a kav, um, and uh, and so therefore, if they were using the Naharda kav, then you would know that it was part of Naharda. So you know, again, just to go through these, you know, particularly the city of Naharda, uh, it's on the Euphrates. Um, and, uh, again, it was really the, uh, it was the, um, yeshiva of, of, of Shmuel, but also to know that here, he also lived in Naharda and also our is there. So the story is also interesting that, you know, originally when he hears that she's from Machozak, he says, you should follow Machozak. He didn't go by, and I think this is what's interesting about Rav Nachman. He didn't necessarily follow what the halakhala was, where he, where he necessarily was. And the other thing about Naharda that we should remember, which I think we've talked about before, but it's always good to mention again, is that they can trace themselves back or that city trace themselves back all the way back to uh, Melech Yehoyachin, right? And that uh, basically when Yehoyachin, who was one of the last kings of Yehuda, right, already when Bubble was involved in Yehuda, um, when they actually, they were actually exiled, um, they built a shul in Naharda, but they used some of the earth and stones that they brought from Yerushalayim. So, uh, so the name of the shul there was Shafiatag, uh, which we've talked about uh, before. And so, the sort of the shul there was treated that Abai mentions that maybe there was like some kind of shchina there that it was, uh, uh, you know, it, it was very connected uh, to Yerushalayim there. So just to see that the Kituba, the halachas around these were not standard. They varied by city. They even allowed up to the time of the Amorayim that there could be a difference based on where you lived in Babel. They didn't require that it be sort of one standard halacha because again, this, this none of this was a deraisa. This was a protection that the rabbis put in and so therefore I think they very much allowed that there could be different by uh, variation. And I think also just we get some good, uh, you know, some regular good um, uh, Bavel, uh, you know, geography uh, here.
So I, wonder, I guess you could talk about Malcoza a little bit also. But sorry, what did you want to say first? I just, I wonder if this was like, if there was any acrimony or contention, like, oh, you're from over there, where you do it that way, you know, or if it was really just regional differences, right? I, I'm, we don't see any. So I actually think from this passage, here. you see that there's no acrimony by the sense that Rav Nachman lives in Naharja and he basically is like, initially, he's like, oh, you're from Mahosa, you know, uh, you know, go ahead. You should basically follow. Like, I think it was purely in a way like uh, academic in a way, you know. So my question is, to what extent does the Gemara reflect like Amcha, right? Like the the everyday person here. Right. I, I can imagine that there could be some measure of of I don't know what hierarchy. Oh, but we're from where Rav is. Rav is better, you know, or we're we're the elite. We are the only people who follow Shmuel. I'm not saying that Right. I, that not certainly doesn't this. appear in this that certainly does not appear in this in, Correct. In this Agreed. And and Mechoza, just so you know, if like you Google it or something like that, you'll see that it's connected to a name of Al I think it's a Al Ma'adain. It's a it's an Arabic name, which means like the cities. But unlike Naharda, which was on the Euphrates, Mechoza is associated with the Tigris. So you know these were just in different these were in different areas uh, 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 of Babel. And the other thing that we should note, I guess, it becomes relevant in Gittin, although we're not going to talk about that for a long time, is that location on a river, let's say, becomes very essential for identifying um, a, a location, right? Meaning other things move around. It's harder to pin down, like, the little village that was over, you know, with no with no real landmarks or and also landmarks can shift over all this time right but rivers don't shift so much they might they might grow they might be wider or narrower but if there's a river there then pretty much you can identify that that's the place where it was right and i think that's important we'll see that with kitten like how do you identify somebody is from Exactly. Okay, I'm going to go on. Um, I'm taking us to the, it's not the end of the daf, as you mentioned. It's the end of this parak, um, which, you know, leaves us with a little bit of daf. A man has died, and who's claiming his estate, basically? So the Gemara says, So we have the daughter-in-law, who's from, she's from the house of the son of El Yashiv, Bar El Yashiv, and she's coming to get the ketuba money, right, from the orphans, meaning the man has died, the children are now called orphans, <clears throat> and she is coming to collect. So, of course, what happens is she's got to bring this to court, right, to get to get a, a solid answer here. Amri, so the orphans say to her, Zila lan milta de tizle hachi. She said, they say to her, it's it's um disparaging, it's demeaning that you're going around dressed like this way. Meaning, it seems that she was wearing, you know, um, like a, a like a robe, like a house robe, as opposed to being getting dressed properly for court. I don't understand. This is coming from. I mean, we're getting the case already in progress, so to speak. It's not as if somebody has. Well, I, I, I actually thought this was a great 
case because I think it tells us something about clothing. Clothing was valuable. We live in a society today where clothing is disposable, right? Like you go to Target, you go to all these stores, it's cheap. Um, you know that like clothes fill up the, the, the issue landfill. of clothing in landfills is like a huge issue. That's not right. the case. You didn't have a lot of clothes or not dressed appropriately. It looks like you were not being maintained no, I, yes, the yes, way that I, you actually were. I agree with that. And we have to come to the court part of the dress. Yes. But what I mean is there's no indication. Nobody has um, described this woman walking around in an inappropriately attired manner, even if it's, it's not a matter of lack of snoot, right? It's a matter of, um, you know, dress for the house as opposed to dress for court. But my point is just that we're already in it. We're already in the critique by the atomim of this woman, as opposed to she walked down the street and all the neighbors said, what are you wearing? Like, there's no, there's no backstory to tell us why they're already. Why she would do this. That's fair. There's no motivation here. Or, or, Or where they get the idea that she's dressing appropriately. In any case, so what happened? So they, the point is, of course, that they want her to dress, you know, more appropriately, whatever. We're in Aramaic, obviously. So I think your data, this speaks to what you're describing. She goes and she dresses herself in all of her clothing. I'm not really sure why that's an answer. But like, is she... Did she not have the right attire for court? Or is she being like a... Is it an answer like to... To be a uh, to show up the atonement, which also I don't really see why that would be to anybody's benefit. So there is something puzzling to me about exactly what's going on in this story. Ravina, they come before Ravina, Amarlahu, and he says to them, Rav, the halachas according to Rav, the Amar Almana Shamin Masha So so what happens is according to Rav, the court will take um, will take an evaluation of the clothing that she's wearing, and that's how that she's going. They're going to then figure out how much she should be getting from the ketuba payment, right? Meaning to to entitled to. They're going to see well, how much is how much is what she's how much is what she's wearing worth, right? So I imagine if you come in, I don't know, you know, Gucci, whatever, right? You come in designer clothing, then they're going to give you a better allotment, let's say, um, more money than if you came, in fact, in your house coat. So I'm curious, like, the Yatomavev have insulted her, and now she's getting more money because she's, you know, responding to them. As I say, there's some piece of this that I find, um, like, it's just missing, like, part of the story I find to be missing. Okay, we've got another story, though. Hahud Amailahu, we've got a um where a person said to the heirs, right? Nedunya Livrat, give the dowry to the daughter. Zal Nedunya. Um, so what happens? Right? The over the time, the dowry um it went down in value, right? It depreciated. That's the word I'm looking for. Right. So that the idea here is that we have um you know, however much money went into the dowry, it's supposed to be set aside. It's not necessarily cash. It could be um, goods, right? But let's say it's gold. Gold is an easy example here because we know the value of gold fluctuates all the time. So you have gold, the value is fluctuating, and now the amount that is the dowry is no longer what it was worth to begin with. And now the question is, 
you know, is the, is the, in this case, we're talking about a will more than a ketubah, is the amount of the will supposed to be the value at the time of the establishment of the will? Or is it supposed to be like those items which are now worth less, but that's what they are? And of course, the question would work also, you know, in the reverse. What happens if it's worth more? Um, you know, so at the very, it's easier if it's worth more, worth more, and you just give those same items, then she got the items. Like that's that's what's been designated. Um, so Ravidi Bar Avin says that the difference in price. Goes to the orphans and not to the, not to the daughter in this case. Meaning, the dowry she would get the dowry, but the the fact that there's a fluctuation does not, if there's any, you know, it, it's not going to be to her benefit. We got another example again where people say to the heirs based on the will. So we've got four hundred dinars zuzim, right? Of this particular kind of wine should go to the daughter. Chamer is wine. and the wine appreciated in value, so that there's going to be, you know, if you give here, it's specified, right? It's by a money amount of the wine. It's not the, it's not it's this value of the wine. So now the wine goes up in value, and so you can with less with less wine. I'm Rav Yosef. And again, the gain, the benefit is going to go to the orphans. They get the be- they get the leftovers. The less not leftovers, the extra, right? The appreciation. So what happens? We've got Rabbi Yochanan, the relatives of Rabbi Yochanan, somebody who's related to Rabbi Yochanan had a wife. Um, of their father, and what happened? He would, she, he, yeah, she was spending flagrantly, right? Meaning she's on on her mizonot, and the I guess these are you know children from a different woman. They don't like this at all. So they come before Rabbi Yochanan to say what, ask him what to do. So he says to tell them, I'm sorry, I've said this wrong. He says to the Yatomim to go to tell the father that he should set aside a certain amount of land. And that will be her Mizono, meaning that value will be the, you know, will any benefit from that land will cover her Mizono. Then their father dies. So they come before Reish Lakish. He says, um, he says, you know, he that he's increased all of the sources of the mizonot. All, you know, how much more so he's increased all the sources of the mizonot. and so they, the Yatobim, the the orphans, say to him, to Reish Lakish, the Rabbi Yochanan Meaning, that's not what Rabbi Yochanan said. You know, you want to say that they still need to support this woman according to how she'd chosen to live off of the estate, meaning when the father was alive, why did the Yatomim have to do this? Now we've got a machlok at Rishlokish and Rabbi Yochanan by virtue of the fact that each of them gave a different answer to this same family. Amar Lahu, 
Zilo Havula. So the, he says to Mishlok, he says, go give her everything that she's um, asking. Ve'ilo mafakne l'chul Rabbi Yochanan me'unaychul. I will take Rabbi Yochanan out of your ears, meaning I will treat you so so badly, right, that you forget that Rabbi Yochanan ever said something different from what I'm saying now. I, I find this backstory, you know, talk about a, a I don't know, we know that Rish Lakish and Rabbi Yochanan really got along very well. So unless they were having some kind of, you know, temporary fight, I, I don't really understand what, you know, why Rish Lakish doesn't say I don't even know. He's not deferring to Rabbi Yochanan. He's not coming up with a compromise in anything. He's sticking to his guns. So then they go before Rabbi Yochanan because they want to complain about Rish Lakish's behavior knocking Rabbi Yochanan. Amar Lahu, so Rabbi Yochanan says, He says, what do you want me to do? He answered the question that they posed to him. And then they said, wait, Rish Lakish, Rabbi Yochanan said something else. So now what's supposed to happen, right? Meaning they've each given different answers to a comparable situation. Following Rabbi Yochanan and Rish Lakish, the next generation, really, I mean, I guess they're really contemporaneous. He says, I heard about this from Rabbi Yochanan, meaning, you know, we don't have to guess what was Rabbi Yochanan's take was because he explained it explicitly before Rabbi Yobau. And part of the issue is, the question of how the husband, the man who has died, how he himself described the land. When he says he's giving the land for her mizonot, then he's fundamentally increased, you know, the mizonot that are available to her. If he had said to her that this land will be for, how do we say this in English, different, because lit and bit in English are not really, we might translate them in the same way, right? One is for her mizonot and one is going to be as her mizonot, let's say, right? Again, these the translations are not, it's not really what's fundamental here, but the point is that the distinct lit mizonot and bit mizonot, katsatsla mizonot. So then he's designating only that land as her mizonot. As opposed to increasing her mizonot, he is... Um, he is limiting it to whatever comes from that particular area of the field or area of his property. What I find interesting, frankly, Yordana, is that this is the end of the parak. meaning we've got case after case after case. There were four or five of them in a row, five, I think. Um, well, maybe not when you add up the Rish Lakish Rabbi Yochanan Machloket. And we have, you know, how are we going to implement the actual collection of the Ketubah in, you know, a difference of approach, by which I mean an actual conflict between the either the widow or the daughter or the right whoever has the rights, different kinds of rights to the ketubah, because you have the yatomim, you have orphans from the father, and you have the woman coming to collect, and it's kind of interesting to me that we've got all this like real life cases, so to speak in the wake of all of the discussion of the halacha throughout the parak. I would agree with you. And uh, I, I think it's it makes sense so that the parak ends with all these real-life discussions. You know, we see, because again, they're, to quote you, Anne, they're sussing this out a little bit. Like, not all of this was totally straightforward. 
And so they're turning to these cases to see how did different Amorai and Paskin, right? How did they decide the law in particular cases as a way of learning uh, about Ketubo itself? Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rangus reviews on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP in our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.